Right, well, welcome to this episode of InfoSec Real. We are absolutely delighted today to be joined by Charity Wright. Charity, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. You're someone that we've both admired for a very long time from afar, from the world of cyber threat intelligence. We uh, are very interested in the uh, fascinating world of Intel and the deep dark corners of the internet that you get yourself involved in. But before we go down that rabbit hole, if you don't mind, let me throw it over to you. and Just tell us who you are and, and what you're all about, Charity. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm really excited to meet you guys and, and engage with your audience. So um, my name is Charity Wright. I currently am a cyber threat intelligence analyst at Recorded Future. So I work with the INSIC group research team. And a lot of what I do right now is around geopolitical analysis. Um, we also do a lot of uh, counter disinformation, you know, detecting, analyzing, uh, and reporting on influence operations around the world, as well as like your standard cyber threat intelligence, malware, APT campaigns. Um, and we're just really trying to stay ahead of those threats. How do you find a, a disinformation campaign? What does that even look like? You know, it's still okay. So, Influence operations, it has been around for, you know, centuries. Militaries have been using it around the world and in the battlefield for a very long time. But the way it's being used now in this digital world, it's such a new frontier for analysts like us. So we're really trying to create frameworks around it and determine what's the best tradecraft, what's the best methodology. Can we create AI to detect false news and detect sentiment, um, whether it's positive or negative. And um, right now, it's still a very manual effort, kind of like how cyber threat intelligence was, you know, even six to 10 years ago. Um, at first, we started doing it very manually, and then we started creating some automation behind it to help detect those types of threats. So we're still in that process with disinformation as well. Um, so right now it's still, we're using some tools that are free open source tools out there to detect you know, bots and trolls and um, to analyze the sentiment and the story, the narrative that's trying to be pushed by whatever actor. Um, but it's, it's pretty interesting. To be honest, it, it's a stressful field because you have to look at and read a lot of uh, really bizarre things. <laughs> I've got a question for you because we, we're getting into it straight away. Um, yeah. But a lot of so I've had a I've had a couple of conversations um, with uh, companies who create. Um, I wouldn't say disinformation, but maybe psychological operation type of content. Um, working in the vendor space and being in threat intelligence, and you don't you don't have to. It depends on how you want to answer this, but would you would you attribute yourself to a specific political alignment? So, as recorded future. So, say let's say a information campaign was out via the US. Would it be your due care to put that out as threat intelligence or? Do you get yes. what I'm trying to say? <laughs> yes. So when I came to work for Recorded Future in August of 2020, 
I asked a lot of those hard questions too. Like if I detect a, a, a campaign, whether that's a cyber threat campaign or disinformation campaign, and it originates in the United States where we are, or in an allied nation, am I allowed to report on that? Or am I restricted? And of course, the leadership was, hey, we are transparent. We report on intelligence that relates to, you know, organizations all over the world. Um, So the interesting part of 2020 was the election year. And really a lot of um, a lot of organizations, whether they're government or private sector, they wanted to know um, who's trying to influence this presidential election in the U.S. And it was really frustrating when we saw very minimal activity. Well, at first we saw very minimal activity coming from foreign adversaries. And the majority of the false content was actually coming from Americans. So it really was more of a domestic issue than it was a foreign issue at the beginning. And it's frustrating when people want to hear that it's just a foreign campaign, that foreigners like Russia or China are trying to interfere with our election. But the truth is there are internal parties that wanted to sway it as well. That's amazing. That's so fascinating, isn't it? When you think of the the kind of shit that goes on. Yeah, you know, as an American, it was it was kind of sad and frustrating um, to get into those extremist forums and really see a very dark side of um, domestic extremism in America that most of us are not exposed to, Um, even. On my own Facebook um, account, I would be sharing some of this intel with family and friends, trying to say, hey, you know, that's that's actually not true. And here's the truth behind it. And here's some of the research we're doing. People don't want to hear the truth. Sometimes they just want to hear what they believe. And so that's, you know, kind of um, what I think that's a big factor that makes disinformation analysis very different from our traditional intelligence analysis. Usually it's very clear who the customer is. It's clear what they want to know. Um, they don't try to hide the information. They just take it and go, okay, here, we need to make some decisions based on this. But in America during this election cycle, it was, it was a lot different. The audience that we're trying to convince, like, Hey, this is actually false. They didn't want to. They didn't want to hear it. <laughs> and, and these disinformation campaigns, then, it would be through regular kind of social media, Facebook, Twitter, that kind of stuff. You would see the output of this kind of fake news. Is that is that right? Yeah, it started in more underground forums, like fringe platforms. Um, they had established some new websites, like the Donald Win. Um, and they started using uh, Gab and Parler and MeWe, just alternative platforms. Um, that's kind of where it started in the underground. And there were some dark websites and deep websites too. And then we saw it go mainstream when certain politicians started picking up that narrative. And it became very clear that they had 
a goal in mind. Their story, their narrative became very clear. And as we saw, um, you know, more politicians and famous people sharing this information, it we started seeing like how it was split left and right um, and who was supporting what types of information. <laughs> so these would be private organizations that would be... So we're not saying when you when we talk about like Russia, China, all the rest of it, we're talking about state sponsored stuff, activity. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking domestic uh, to influence a U.S. government campaign, it can't be the U.S. government doing that. Am I right? Is it so it's other entities? What what kind of entities are we talking about? So one of the interesting things is like, let's say. um President Trump, for example, former President Trump, um, he represents not only himself and his family, but he also represents the United States and the Republican Party. So it's hard to differentiate because he started sharing a particular narrative, uh, for example, stop the steal or Biden stole the election or the Democrats stole the election. That was the narrative. And he claims to be representing his own opinion. But in the meantime, he was not taking responsibility for the role that he plays and how many people and organizations he was representing as well. So when we were identifying who is responsible for this, it really came down to individuals Um, and then groups of individuals as they started identifying with that particular narrative, but we can't say it was the U S government or, you know, it definitely was not a particular branch of the military or anything like that. On the contrary, um, those organizations were very open to hearing what disinformation was being spread. So I think the government as a whole was going, okay, what do we need to know? Who's spreading the false news? And how will that affect this election? How do we protect this election from that false information? Um, whereas a lot of the false information was coming from, you know, figureheads in the party, figureheads in certain social media platforms. I guess like the executive of Gab, he also was, you know, um, one of those that encouraged that information. I guess after Cambridge Analytica, no one needs to hide anymore about, about these activities. Everyone knows it happens. So instead yeah. of doing it in, in the dark, you might as well just do it openly on Twitter. You might as well just put these, these things out now because um, everyone's cleared up. But um, why, why do you think... Um, and this is you know this is this is globally but why do you think we as the public you know you've you've been in the military some time but why do you think civilians um really struggle with the truth when it comes to cyber uh, news or cyber related types of activities why do you think that is um you know that's a really good question i think well, it's just overwhelming mm. I think there's we're just inundated with information every day because of how digital our world is. And I think it's just, I mean, 
to go a psychological perspective, I think it's a way of coping. I think a lot of people don't want to deal with conspiracies and figuring out what's true. One of our biggest frustrations is um, trying to verify information and bust myths um, because there's always some kind of contradicting information out there. So I think the general population, they just, they don't want to deal with it. It's just a lot to handle um, when you're talking about, you know, the, the QAnon conspiracies and the, the idea of there being like a ruling elite class that is, that are like horrible people, that's scary to think about. And I think people generally like to avoid thinking about such dark topics. I think, I think you're right. And I, it goes back, I think what you said before really resonated that people really like to hear what they want to believe, right? Like what, you know, what that kind of preconception in their head, if someone says it, they kind of believe it because it validates the, the kind of crazy thoughts that maybe they had six months ago. So it's, and, and it's so hard to differentiate, to, to get them away from that um, once, it's, once it's out there in the public domain. Fascinating world, this. It really is. You, your background is, actually, you mentioned that you touched on it there, that you, you have a military background as well. Um, and you, you have a specialism in Chinese linguistics as well. Yes. Can you, can you give us some background there? What, where did that come from? What's the deal? <laughs> I know it's bizarre. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's impressive. It's not bizarre. It's impressive. <laughs> well, I joined the army when I was 22. I was in my third year of college here in North Texas. And I just decided, you know what? I want to see the world. I want a, a change of pace and learn some new things. So I joined the army to be a linguist, not knowing what language I would be assigned to. I was, let's see, it was 2005. So I was assuming I'll learn Arabic and go to Iraq. Like that was in my head, that was the plan. But the army had other plans <laughs> for me and um, they assigned me to learn Mandarin Chinese. So I attended the Defense Language Institute for um, a year and a half to learn Mandarin. And it's really, it's really an amazing program, one of the best language schools in the world. And it's for US military and government uh, contractors. But we we went from knowing absolutely no Chinese to you know, at least a college level, being able to talk about and understand economics and politics and, uh, you know, public relations or, you know, international relations. Um, it so was really challenging. Any, no Mandarin, no experience prior to that? Serious? Mm -hmm. I could barely learn Spanish in high school. <laughs> amazing. So a year and a half uh, and you're fluent in Mandarin. It was um, pretty amazing. proficient. Yeah. I think fluency kind of built up over the years of actually working on the job. But when I graduated from Chinese, I was assigned to work at the National Security Agency. So that was a surprise to me. I was stationed in Hawaii. So that was very different from what I imagined. But I was really, really happy. And I felt very, you know, blessed to have that opportunity. Um, so up to that point, I had no idea why I was learning Chinese. I was thinking State Department or interpreting. I, I didn't know. So when they put me at the NSA, um, it was really eye-opening. And um, 
I mean, I know NSA is known as a spy agency, but really um, the motto is that um, we monitor everybody, like foreign adversaries. So it was really, it was a great experience to be able to analyze foreign intelligence and do live real-time translation from Chinese to English. And I think that's where your fluency kind of builds up on the job as you work that that particular mission um, and you learn the vocabulary and the culture specific to that particular mission. Why didn't they tell you what you were going to be doing then when you were learning the language? Is that but what, why not dangle the carrot so you learn it faster? And learn, I don't know. <laughs> right. Know. I couldn't. I would have that. spent many more nights in study hall, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's to protect us from being collected on by counterintelligence. Wow. So at the Defense Language Institute in California, um, we received several briefings about Chinese counterintelligence and Russian counterintelligence working as undercover um, delivery drivers or cab drivers or whatever, trying to build connections with us and collect on what we do know about our job. Now, there, there are some people at the language school that have gone to work a mission and then returned to learn a different language. Like I was in Chinese class with some soldiers that had already been working as Korean linguists um, on the DMZ in Korea. So they knew the, you know, kind of top secret type of work that they were going to be doing with that language. But those that were new, we did not know. So um, it was just, I think it's for our own good, you know, for our own security. And I'm really glad because I actually, I actually have an interesting story about a cab driver in particular um, that frequented, fre frequented, I cannot say that word. Yes. <laughs> Our um, base and built relationships with us. He was an old Chinese man, um, like older than my grandpa. And um, he ended up being discovered as a counterintelligence agent. So it was like he was trying to collect on us, get to know us. He knew so much about our families, where we lived back home. Um just a lot about our lives in general that we never really thought was harmful information or could be used against us. Um, but I'm glad, you know, in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't know the top secret level of information that, that I'd be exposed to. I guess now looking back, you think that's quite obvious. Yeah. <laughs> you could, well, you yes. Think, mm, that's a bit, yeah, a little bit suspicious, but um it's crazy stuff. I love having these conversations because it's it's almost the sensationalizing of the spy movies, but it's all real. Um, so, so I, my question was: Do you think you've ever been honeypotted? And I guess you kind of. Um, yeah, and since then, um, there have been more online incidents that hmm. I can recall. A lot of um, very suspicious LinkedIn job offers for working for, you know, mysterious named companies in mainland China, offers to fly me there and pay for all of my travel. Um, at first, I was talking to them to kind of see what they wanted. And then I had received so many of those messages, I just decided I'm going to take the China, my Chinese name off of my LinkedIn profile. And maybe that will limit how much I'm targeted. And that helped a little. 
Um, but it was very intense for a few years when I was still in the army. Well, I, I mean, this is crazy, but how, how does it make you feel then knowing that there was counterintelligence operatives assigned their mission was to elicit information from you and from, from your colleagues? How, how does that make you feel? Is it, is, um, it, is it a game because you're in the same kind of game as them or is it actually a bit more personal? Um, when they target you, it feels personal. Um, and I know it's not always personal. Like there's a lot of, a lot of Chinese linguists out there, a lot of people that have worked for the agencies and, um, have since left government work, but, um, it feels pretty personal, especially after the OPM hack, the office of personnel management in the U S that's where all of our security clearance paperwork is stored. And when it was revealed that China had breached that information and, and stolen that information, that's when I started to become worried. Um, because then you're talking about my family, my home, my friends, my roommates, like they know everyone that I've been connected with for the past 10, 15 years. Um, but it was also at that point that I just decided I can worry about this for the rest of my life and let it stress me out. Or I can just accept the fact that China has a lot of information on me and they might come snooping a little bit further, you know, and that's why I've gone public talking about my job. And I mean, China already knows. So what am I hiding? Yeah, exactly. And with Equifax, details, but, you know, yeah. And then with Equifax as well, it's just you know, there's, there's only one thing left. Um, they know, they know everything. Um, what do they want it for, though? It sounds like I feel like that's a, probably the most stupid question I could ask you. But like, is it so that they can try and turn you into some kind of double agent, or is it so that they can actually um, put pressure on you for some reason by using your personal connections and influences and stuff? What, what is it they they would do if you accepted one of those crazy job offers? What what would happen next? Do you think? Oh, they would probably offer me money to um, steal secrets and hand them classified information. Okay. Yeah, that's what they typically do. But honestly, if you if you zoom out and look at their big picture, nothing is off limits for China. Um, they really believe in unrestricted warfare, which I think I have the book right here. Um, this book has been very insightful. It's actually written by um, two leaders in the People's Liberation Army. And this book really outlines all the different ways that they use asymmetric warfare to conquer their objectives. And it means that nothing is off the table. Um, so when you consider that, and you zoom out and look at their capabilities for collecting data, not only in their own country. I mean, it's, you know, the the amount of cameras and data collection, they have access to everything in their networks there. But also they're doing this big data collection all around the world now, too. Um, I think when you piece it together, it creates a puzzle and you start to be able to determine human behavior based on culture and language and, and human behavior in general. 
Um, and when you have that type of information, it's very valuable for AI and machine learning. Um, and it just powers technology even further. If you can figure out what people, how they think, how they behave, how they act, and then you can sell them products based on that behavior, it you know grows your economy. It's just like a trickle down effect. They're they're very wise. They're very. Um, China has long term objectives. You know, fifty years out, and they have a one party system, and everything in that system is working towards achieving those objectives. So that that is one advantage they have over Western societies that tend to be politically, you know, torn apart. Um, so it, it's interesting to see what they can do with all of this data that they're collecting, either through, you know, um, let's say supply chain breaches, um, es cyber espionage, or even counterintelligence agents on the ground. It's crazy to think um, how powerful they are as a nation. Um, if you really like, you're you're in the weeds, and you 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 must think, gosh, there is there is nowhere to hide. There there is there is no corner. And I've had this conversation before about privacy, you know, where we think a lot of people definitely pro. You know, I'm pro privacy and X, Y, and Z. But realistically, when you think about it, there is no privacy on the internet. And if you if you if you're happy with that, which I am, then cool, it's fine. I still use WhatsApp. Like I know everyone jumped off WhatsApp onto onto Signal, but realistically, like <laughs> you're just making your life more difficult. Like, <laughs> like I still, you know, if Mark Zuckerberg wants my information, that's cool. Like I I'm happy with that. I've got I have nothing really to hide unless I'm doing illicit information or I'm doing activities on the web which I want to hide or in in real life I want I want to hide. Do you think China's use of cyber um I'm not going to say security but their their use of cyber warfare is just one tool in their long-term plan or are they heavily invested now into technology and they're going that direction? Yeah, I think <clears throat> it's one of their most valuable tools. Um but, you know, something interesting that we've observed over the years is that they aren't as creative in creating their own cyber weapons. They tend to steal other people's cyber weapons, repurpose them, and it's still effective. So, you know, they're kind of like, why reinvent the wheel? Um, but I think it cyber cyber warfare definitely is. Um, I think one of the most serious threats coming from China, but we also have to consider, um, I, I call it cyber colonialism, like how they're building internet infrastructure in other countries and they have sole control over that. They have, you know, backdoors into everything and they have ultimate control over monitoring internet traffic in other countries, not just their own. So that's, you know, that's kind of like big brother um but don't, all over don't, the world. don't you think don't you think we're already there though but you know because yeah. the equation group have the exact same you know <laughs> juniper backdoors cisco backdoors like it, it's already there so i know china are doing it um but why do we i know and some people do talk about the other nations who who do observe the exact same type of tactics um 
But why is it more interesting if Russia and China are doing it or than if the UK or, you know, the GCHQ are doing it? If GCHQ do it, it's, no, oh, it's okay, don't worry about that. But if China are doing it, it's on the FT, it's everywhere else. Why do you think? Yeah, you're right. I, I don't have answers to it. Uh, you know, we can't choose where we're born or, um, I mean, we can choose where our loyalties lie. That's, that's for sure. Um, the thing is, there are some nation states like Russia and China and North Korea who are known for human rights violations and abusing their power. Um, not saying that America and its allies don't ever experience that, but in general, we have better control over corruption um, in certain ways. <laughs> um, and we are accountable to you know, international organizations like the UN um, to limit human rights abuses. Meanwhile, China is using this great power that they have to persecute minorities. And basically, they're conducting genocide against the, you know, uh, Uyghur Muslim community. And, um, you know, in the news just last week or a couple of weeks ago is, you know, Russia is um, constantly chasing down anyone who speaks against them. And they're always trying to silence dissenters. So I think there is a, a huge difference in how this power is used and who should be allowed to use it in those ways. But I mean, it's a crazy world we live in, you know? It is. I'm sorry, we got really dark there, didn't we? We got really, <laughs> really into, um, into the ethics of it all. My, but my it other... is like a cyber yeah. arms race, right? It is. Yeah. It's like a like a cold war, a competition to like always get ahead. And oh, they have that capability. Well, we need that capability. And what if they use this as a weapon against us? We need to be able to defend against it. So it's just escalating and escalating. Um, and right now we're in this place where we're going. Okay, where's the line between like when does a cyber attack become? actual warfare you know what i mean so that's i think that's where we are in our i think we um i th i think we as a community thought wanna cry was that line of well you've you know ma well you know we've had other other cyber large mass cyber attacks but wanna cry was especially for the uk hit our the NHS and people's lives were were at stake, and that was the you've crossed the line. And since then, there hasn't really been any you know movement, and we've had many many attacks since then, and many big uh, big incidents. Um, in terms of lines, do you think well, we're already there? A splintered internet, you know, you've got Asia Pac Chinese internet you've got the Russian internet and then you've got everywhere else. So do, do, do you see that getting worse? So you mentioned earlier about China building infrastructure in, uh, I, I know it's from a personal, um, uh, uh, personally I've seen this in Caribbean countries where they've built roads and infrastructure and then put internet connectivity in there. Do you see a place where there is the Chinese internet, but it's not in China, it's everywhere else? Absolutely. Yes. So, China has been investing heavily into other countries, especially, you know, in certain areas in Africa. They've built a base in Djibouti. Um, they're building out a lot of Internet infrastructure and 
And that's not to count like supply chain. So like getting their technology and backdoors into, you know, Western supply chains too. Um, but yeah, I actually did a presentation maybe last year on this topic of the balkanization of the internet and how with Russia implementing their RUNET, what are the objectives there? Like, are they trying to protect themselves from a worldwide internet shutoff? Or are they trying to prepare to kind of segregate themselves like China has with their great firewall? Um, and does that mean that everyone is going to start becoming very nationalistic with their internet infrastructure? Like, is everyone going to start going, okay, we won't accept foreign investment or this foreign computer chip or, you know what I mean? Like just trying to protect their own infrastructure. Mm. I think it does look like it's going that direction, 100%. but. Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's definitely going that direction. Um, I, I for... see in the UK. Like, oh yeah. You know, with the, um, I, I work in the telecommunication space and there's some um, legislation that's coming into force pretty soon, which is effectively going to tell internet service providers you cannot use these companies in your organization. You can only use mm -hmm. X percentage. And I get it. Like there are certain, but all of a sudden, independent businesses are at the mercy of uh, whatever the government tells us to do. And, and all of a mm -hmm. sudden, we've got, we, we can't use this product that's best for our customers. We've got to use something else. Um, yeah. It's, it's the, the, the start of that road, I think. Fascinating. And I, I think the solar winds slash fire eye slash US government, I think this big incident was kind of an eye opener yeah. for a lot of executives in corporations. I think they're going, oh my gosh, okay, we've been hearing about third party risk and supply chain risk, but this is a mass scale campaign. And, and from what we understand, it's cyber espionage right now. But the danger is that they have a foothold in those networks and could easily weaponize that foothold and create some kind of destructive attack or shut down, which would cause great economic damage on their victims. So I think it's been a wake up call. A lot of uh, a lot of leadership are coming to the vendors going, OK, what can you tell me about not only this attack, but how have supply chain attacks evolved? over the past 10 years and where do you see it going how can we get ahead of it you know that's I where CTI comes in <laughs> i personally and this is my opinion i don't think you realistic in, in a realistic form i don't think you could ever get ahead of it because you always have to implement some level of trust with a provider as much as you can do as much as due diligence as much as you care as you want but that does not stop that third-party provider being compromised, either through digital space or through human compromise. For, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or someone scattering um, uh, USBs in the car park, or someone saying, "I'll give you, I'll give you half a million to go and in plug this into the network." Like those things that will still like, will still happen because unfortunately humans are. A flawed machines um and we will accept money for um for anything well, yeah, um, yes. conversation ashley what's your price ashley <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if recorded, that's what you're saying. yeah if recorded future one <laughs> um, <laughs> um so yeah you're right it's 
you know, I, I can see you're a realist and, and you've heard the slogan, like, it's not if you get breached it's when you get breached. And I think the goal really is just to reduce the risk as much as possible because we're never going to be able to do like 0% risk. So it's all about, you know, balancing, um, productivity and giving people freedom to actually work, you know, within these limitations, but also securing them the best that we can. So from your, from your, um, your privileged perspective on cyber intelligence, because you work in a vendor who gathers cyber intelligence for, for, for commercial purposes, um, how, how can a business, um, look at their vendors and feel some sort of comfort? Is there key bits of information they should be looking at, or should they be asking, mm. oh, "Have you got what? What's your NIST maturity and X, Y, and Z?" Or is there something else they should be doing? Like when you're selecting vendors, like yeah, or part- existing vendors, yeah. I think it's really important. Well, first of all, I think there's responsibility on both sides. Mm. The vendor um, has a responsibility to the customer to disclose how you're securing your organization and that data. Um, you know, on the vendor side, we've had, a, we have some of the, you know, biggest companies in the world and government organizations as well. And their standards are very high. So when they inspect our security protocol and set up, um, sometimes we have to make adjustments to become more secure to make that customer um, comfortable with the the level of risk of doing business with us. So two sides, I think the vendor needs to be transparent and honest with that, you know, of course, under an NDA, just to make sure there's nothing being exposed too much, but they have a responsibility to be transparent with their customers about, here's how we're securing your data. You know, if you are Bank of America or Ernst & Young, and you're giving me an entire list of your digital assets to monitor, that's a very um, sensitive set of data. And so I have the responsibility to say, okay, here's what we do to protect this. Is this up to your standards? But on the opposite side, when you're interviewing vendors and you're exploring working with them, pay attention to your gut, pay attention to what they're telling you and what they're not telling you. Definitely go in there with an open mind, ready to ask a lot of questions. And don't be afraid to be demanding. It's the security of your entire organization. And it really only takes one weak uh, third party or one weak connection with um, that supply chain. Mm. No, totally true. I've seen it so many times where it turns into a messy situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to take you back slightly to, you know, you were talking about the work that you did in the U.S. military, and it sounded fascinating. Um, what? Why did you leave? What was the the decision point to go into the private sector, and what did that transition look like? Um, you know, what? I'm glad you asked. So, as a woman in the military, I decided to start a family. So when I got pregnant, I decided, you know what, I'm going to stay in. I'm working at NSA. It's an office job. It's fine. But army hours are still very long, 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. sometimes. And um, I just found it really hard to balance my work life in the army with having a newborn baby. And then I had a second child right after the first. Like my kids are 10 months apart. 
Wow. So that wow, was not part of the plan, but I'm very blessed to have them now. Um, so as a working mother, I decided I'm going to get out of the army, at least active duty and finish college while I get the kids, you know, at least off to school. Mm -hmm. Um, so when they were old enough to start going to school full time is when I returned to the workforce. And when I made that decision, I actually was, I ended up back here in Texas near my family and I decided to join the Texas army national guard as a Chinese linguist, which is a part-time, it's like a reserve obligation. And the Texas army national guard, we do a lot of like, um, stuff here in Texas to support, you know, natural disasters or protests or whatever. So I really wanted to continue my army career and kind of pick up where I left off. Um, but I found that once I moved home, I joined the guard part-time, I got into cybersecurity full-time, um, in the private sector, it was just a much more fulfilling mission working, um, in the private sector and discovering all the really cool intel that we can do with open sources, it was mind blowing. Like coming from a secure facility, a SCIF, and working with classified information all the time, you just assume that none of this is unclass. And then you go to the private sector and you read, you know, an APT report, like the APT one report blew my <laughs> mind. I, I looked at the guy and said, how is this unclassified? Like, you know, the buildings, you know, their names, like, and he said, Hey, you can find it all through open sources. And I was like, I'm in, I'm in, I want to be part of this. Uh, also the money is better in the private sector. So <laughs> you should have just led with that because that's yeah. what I was, you could have just said, yeah, just don't want, there's don't a soundbite right there. There's the soundbite. <laughs> yeah. so why, why, why is it so annoying? Isn't it? Because, and especially in the UK, I mean, I don't know what the percentage ratios are like between, um, you know, public and private sector salaries. In the UK, having friends and, and colleagues who I know are in UK government, it's so bad. And they yeah. work in London, the most expensive place on the planet. And uh, you think, what? It's, it's unreal. They, they earn, I, I, I think I earn three, four times as much as they do. It's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, in the government sector, it's a little more stable. It's like harder to get fired. Um, you move up a little slower. So things are a little more stable and calm. Um, private sector, I found, especially in cyber threat intelligence, everything is changing. Every day, it's something new. It's a new attack. It's a new campaign. It's a new discovery. And also, when you work for a vendor, you're not only producing the intelligence, but you're selling it and you're promoting it, and you're building your brand, too. So that's a whole other area um, of excitement. I love it, personally. Um, but when I have friends that are getting out of the military, I, I try to pull them into private sector. But a lot of them like the stability and the comfort and safety of a government role. And I, I mean, I can't blame them. So it just different personalities, you know, yeah, I get it. I, I, a lot, there is a lot of like U.S. veterans, though, veterans in general, not just U.S., but like having um, when I previously worked at B of A, a lot of the cyber threat team, a lot of the cybersecurity team in the U.S. were, were you know, ex-military. And I feel like there, there's that safety net in the private sector where like where one goes, others will follow as well. Right. And it's mm -hmm. 
you know people speak the same kind of language they have the same same kind of background and um experiences and it's just a bit of like you said yeah. safety i guess it's nice that's that's what pulled me into private sector i actually never considered cyber because i was never an it person and i'm not great at math and science so i assumed like cyber is not my thing but when i found out the need for intelligence collection on this type of these types of threats i was really intrigued and i found a company here in dallas where like everyone i interviewed with was former military and so it felt like family and um working with a former commander of us cyber command um we called him colonel it was just a very familiar atmosphere and it was a great way for me personally to transition from military to to private sector. I felt um like family, things were comfortable, we had morning briefings. It was just a very familiar atmosphere. So that helped me and now I try to do the same thing to let my friends know, hey, there are options out here and you can make a lot more money doing it out here. <laughs> one one question I have for you is um I had a conversation last week with um, a company out of Israel, and both founders are ex-IDF. Um, How come in America, or in the UK, anywhere else, bar Israel, how come the ex-service people in, in countries outside of Israel don't go and create companies? But in Israel, every most people out of, out of um, unit, I can't remember the, the, the number, Eight to two hundred, they go on to either head up companies or create cybersecurity companies. Why do you think that? Well, um, I think they've established this really amazing, like tech bubble, and they're so supportive of each other, like family. Um, you know, I worked at Insights for a year and a half, and they are based in Tel Aviv. And it was an amazing experience. Just I got to spend three weeks in Israel, getting to know the team, training with them, learning how they do things. And it felt very familiar. Like it felt like we have same analysis processes. So it was kind of like a, a brotherhood, a partnership. Um, but Israel has this amazing culture where they're so supportive of each other. And um, it's just a very tight community over there. They have a lot of meetups. They know each other's families, and so they always try to support and lift each other up and promote promote their friends and family in the industry. But also, Unit eighty two hundred, um, you know, they specialize in cyber operations. So you have these very young people, and by the way, um, milit military service is compulsory in yeah. Israel. So that's a you know the majority of the population is going through this kind of path, this program. And some of them choose to naturally go into the private sector doing what they did in the military. Um, and then they learn even more on the outside, just like we do in, in every other country. Um, you leave the military and you get a, a broader view of the world and about cyber threats all over. It's not a narrow mission of like, okay, we're going after Hamas in the Gaza Strip or you're on Iran or whatever. It's a more broad view of like international cyber threats. Do you, do you think it's challenging for people who don't have a military background to break into cyber threat intelligence? Um, yeah, 
You know, I, I've, I've heard some feedback from academics and think tankers and, and people that didn't come from military. I've heard that like sometimes they feel a little marginalized or like they didn't know if they could do cyber threat intel because they don't have intelligence background. Um, but I always encourage them to just go for it anyway, because in the intelligence community, we need people with all different types of mindsets and knowledge and background. Like we are, we are teams of complex human beings solving complex problems. And so we need people with legal um, backgrounds and um, compliance and IT and networking. You know, people can be very su successful in CTI no matter where they come from. I think it really just takes a drive and a desire to want to learn it and to always be like hungry for more. But yeah, I think sometimes they do, they have expressed like that they feel a little left out, but I try to let them know like at Recorded Future, INSIC group is like a mix of IT backgrounds, military, intelligence agencies, think tanks, and college graduates. So it really gives us like a well-rounded, um, I don't know, just kind of the ability to solve problems in, in ways that I haven't seen before in other companies. How do you think, um, so if charity had a, a, this is how you get into cyber threat intelligence, top 10 or top five, like how would you, outside of the military background, how would you do that? Like participate in like trace lab um, types of activities or is there any, what do you think? Yes. Oh my gosh. I love trace labs, by the way. Um, shout out to Adrian Korn. Um, he's a friend of mine. Oh. So yeah, when I first got into cyber, I had no cyber background and I felt I felt really out of it. Like I was just like I have no idea what I'm doing here. I told my bosses like I'm going to be real with you. I don't know anything about cyber, but I'm going to learn as fast as I can. And some of the ways that I did that was like diving into classes, certifications, volunteering with groups like Trace Labs and National Child Protection Task Force. And just like trying to expand my open source intelligence capabilities through opportunities outside of work too. But also like consider all of the resources that you have in your company. There are people sitting next to you that have a plethora of knowledge and understanding about these, these things that you may not understand. If you can get an hour on their calendar every couple of weeks, just say, hey, I would really appreciate if you could teach me what cryptography is. Or, you know, there's a section in the Security Plus certification I don't understand. Can you teach me this? I think using what you have available around you is really important to learn cyber. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. And I should throw in reading as many CTI reports as you can. Like dig into whatever vendor reports you can get your hands on, attend webinars. And that's not just a plug because I write reports and do webinars, but I say that because um, you learn from reading. And as a CTI analyst, one of the most important things we do is we have to write reports. And the way to learn that style of reporting is by reading those reports. So, um, you know, Oh, my light just went out. Um, I 
used to be very vendor agnostic. And, um, and I will still say that like, as peers in the industry, we respect each other's work. And we're always like, seeking to understand what everybody else is doing. What is their methodology? What is their trade craft? Um, how are they, you know, finding these campaigns? So dig in and just, you know, read as much as you can. That's my best advice. You got to look at like the fire I report on solar wind and it was insane. It's just I, for a different level for me. I was oh gosh. That, that's what there. I was thinking. You, you, you're saying read reports. Like some of these reports are heavy. <laughs> Like they're heavy lifting. Yeah, I read that fire, and I've read the cra- the CrowdStrike um, um, enumeration uh, um, report. I just think th- those those are on different levels. So, <laughs> I'll tell you what, you know what? So we were sharing books before. I tell you what, I had printed the other day. This is hilarious. Actually, you'll probably love this. It's the uh, U.S. versus Parkin quick cure. The, uh, the oh, nice! It's all, it's all here. This is my, this is my bedtime reading at the moment. Wow! Is <laughs> is that like, is that an indictment or is yeah. it like a transcript? Yeah, that's the. It's just the indictment. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I think there was an updated indictment recently, actually. But um, let me get the. Cover. Yes. Yeah, Those indictments are so complaint. insightful. <laughs> yep. Um, oh yes, I I read Chinese indictments all the time, and you know that's where like. If you have a peer that has a legal background, they can be very helpful with things like that, helping to understand like why they use certain terminologies and indictments and like what good is it to, you know, put sanctions on a country or to indict an an individual. So, yeah, that looks like nice nighttime reading. I know. I know the fa- did you pay for that to be professionally? I did. Yeah. To be fair, Do you guys want to see what I have here for reading? I am so excited. I I just ordered a bunch of books on Amazon, and these are all about narrative warfare. So let me show you. Um, Dr. Ajit Maan, she is a PhD, and she teaches all about narrative warfare. So I bought a bunch of her books because I, I attended one of her webinars. Um, Escaping the Rabbit Hole is all about how to debunk conspiracy theories um, using facts, logic, and respect. And then more of Dr. Ma'an's books, um, Narrative Warfare is um, is kind of like the starting one and Dangerous Narratives and Political Influence Operations. Wow. So I think I'm set on reading material for a while. I find it, I, I do like the fact that you've got a book, Escape in the Rabbit Hole. And you were up to three yeah. thirty last night in the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I'd I'd love to know to how, how to escape the rabbit hole because I got into a uh, editing uh, Adobe Premiere rabbit hole the other day, and you just get I you know I think it is a industry like a cybersecurity thing. We spoke to um, Jackie Sider about this, and that that's what he does. He gets into these these long rabbit holes, and then pops his head up and realizes two days have passed, or you know, or it's three a.m. and you've you've you know, you wear you, you it where you are. Um, yes. One thing I want to... Felt, that's how it felt when we were analyzing disinformation around the election. We spent so much time in these underground forums and, and you know, trying to identify um, if somebody was, like, saying, like, where they're going to meet or what they're going to, you know, what kind of weapons they're bringing. Like, we, we needed solid intel to hand off to um, law enforcement to be able to protect, you know, Americans and and try to deter what happened on um, 
what was it, January 6th? Was that the day? I think so. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. Right. The insurrection. So it was like we were deep in the rabbit hole. Like we were really deep in there. We were using alternate personas and posing as them. And it's it's hard when you can't identify with an ideology, like an extremist ideology, but you have to pretend anyway just to like gather intel. It's it's pretty rough. That's so um, the private sector, though, I've always found it quite interesting, like, you know, e- even stupid things like buying stolen credentials on the criminal underground forum, um, you know, as basic as they could get, I guess, um, yeah, up to having conversations with people about weapons and all the rest of it. Like, as a private entity, though, how do you, if, if law enforcement came along, busted open the log files and were like, hey, I want to speak to this, this charity rights person because they're, they're in the thick of it. And like, well, how do you say, well, how, how did they know that what, what a company like Recorded Future is doing is legal? I guess that it looks legal, but. Well, I've never had, uh, I've never been caught. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that would like be it. like because um, I, you know, I follow best practices and just try to protect myself and my team as much as possible. But yeah, if if that happened, um, we would have a very transparent conversation. And, um, you know, honestly, a lot of law enforcement are our customers. Mm. So we they don't know what what false personas we're using on those forums. But um, we're usually not the ones selling malware, selling ransomware as a service. Like we're not the ones doing that. We're, we're the ones like purchasing on behalf of our customers you know well, there's a that's the incident with the two coal fire um pen testers who were prosecuted for breaking into a bank um, so <laughs> yeah i think it's um that was rough yeah and, and you, you look at it thinking well, how, how why did they even go ahead like who who's who's is there someone not looking at this thinking the penetration testers yeah, go, yeah. let's just put this to bed especially <laughs> um, if you're physically trying to penetrate a building and their security measures you got to have you got to make sure everybody knows what's going on everybody was briefed yeah that's that's crazy i wanted to ask you about um an article you posted a few years ago um about anxiety in cybersecurity. is that okay yes that's- yeah, yeah and um it's something that we've touched on a few times do these recordings about imposer, imposter syndrome um, and cybersecurity anxiety. And I just wanted to ask you, why, in, in the bottom of the uh, bottom of the article you talked about, you, you feel like this is the only technology industry where, where you feel this exists, where there's a massive anxiety about being in the industry itself. Why do you think that is? Man, this industry can be kind of brutal. It's like every day there's something different and we're trying to figure it out as we go. And I think that's, um, you know, there's a level of uncertainty that kind of drives that anxiety. And people deal with it differently. Some people dive right in and want to solve all the problems and they overwork themselves. And then others will, you know, kind of um, dissociate and like push it away and try to ignore it. And I don't, I don't know if there's like, you know, a good way. I I think self-care is really important, but um, I think that 
Also, a major factor is that we're so understaffed. Like we don't have enough people to do the jobs that we have. And that's every single organization that I've worked at. Um, Actually, you know, Ernst & Young, we were well-staffed. But the industry in general, it's it's pretty hard to find qualified people. Um, and and so we're all just, you know, we're overworked and we're dealing with a lot of stress, trying to figure out new threats that we've never seen before. Um, and it can be it can be pretty rough. <laughs> Do you, yeah, you mentioned something about trying to figure out um, and something that I've personally experienced is uh, when. When when you have the moniker of the cybersecurity expert or the CTI expert, people always want you to have the answer. And sometimes you don't have the answer and you almost don't want to say, I have no idea. Like, I just don't. <laughs> so you, you, you stress about not having the answer all the time. Mm-hmm. And I can yeah. imagine in CTI, it's, well, your job is to have the answer. Why don't you know the answer? Yeah. I think it's perfectly okay for people to admit that's a good question. I don't have the answer to that. And that's something we learned in the military. Um, when you go in front of a board for an interview or a promotion, they don't want you to lie. They don't want you to falsify or make up fluffy information. They just want you to be honest and say, I don't know, but I'll definitely look that up and figure it out. You know, they want to know that that you can be transparent and honest. I mean, we're human. We can't know everything. So, but it, it does, it is a lot of pressure. I agree. And this is a pressure part of an industry. Um, and I, I know from my experience, limited experience within the industry, and certainly in the financial institution space, that it is a pressure cooker. But I wouldn't change it because that experience of being in that pressured environment accelerated my own personal learning journey. Like there is no tomorrow. Like I learned yeah. things, I worked with people. Someone I really respect, Anthony, uh, whilst I was working at BFA, said, you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And that's stuck <laughs> with me ever since he said wow. that. And it's so true because when I was there, the people were just amazing. And you think, yeah. shit, I'm bringing their average down. <laughs> and I need, <laughs> I need to learn and I need to develop and I need to, like, you know, better myself. And it's this organic process of this continuous improvement that everyone, you know, a rising tide floats all boats as they say you know you, you kind of better yourself and others will follow you um it, it's it's an inspiring industry to be in. You've- yes i definitely experienced that as well when i came to recorded future well i should preface it by saying normally when i come into a cti team i'm usually the only chinese linguist but when i came to recorded future i found out that there's an entire team <laughs> of chinese linguists and i was like <laughs> what am I doing here? Like, what do you need me for? Um, But it's amazing because iron sharpens iron. And it's so nice to have a team that you can bounce ideas off of or to peer review your work or double check your translations or, or whatever. So I realized, wow, I am so lucky to be part of this phenomenal team Sometimes I still struggle with imposter syndrome or, you know, I'm not as technical as I'd like to be, um, but I find that I get to learn from the more technical team members and, um, and we all grow from that, you know, and you don't have to be good at everything. Everyone has their unique gifts and specialties 
And I found out really early on that the technical aspects were not my strength, but I'm better at geopolitical analysis and strategic intelligence. And I do have something to offer the industry, despite not being super technical. Yeah, yeah. I love that phrase, iron sharpens iron. I'm definitely (laughs) stealing trademark and copyright in that one. (laughs) I think it may have come from the Bible or some (laughs) philosopher. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. You have a very rich relationship with the the industry. U.S. military background, um, a very varied... employee ba- employment base rather ey insights the army national guy etc what's and, and obviously recorded future what's what's next for charity then what what is on the horizon in your career landscape do you think now that you've delved into the world of cyber security is there something else that you've seen that you really want to dig into or is it are you are you just in your uh, yeah. kind of utopia right now um maybe both because I'm always like looking forward. I'm one of those people I have to train myself to be present in the moment because I'm always like, I want to grow. I have goals to meet. Um, I discovered last year that I really have found my sweet spot of what I love and what I'm good at. And a lot of that is, you know, presenting and teaching and educating people. I, I'm one of the most extroverted people in the industry, which is rare. Uh, you don't meet very many extroverts in CTI. Um, so I'm trying to just enjoy that role and constantly challenge myself to to grow and report on like, you know, geopolitical issues is really what I'm digging into a lot. But in a, my objectives right now, like looking forward, This stack of books is a big part of what I'm going to be doing this year is really like we're recorded future and instinct group. We're already doing a ton of detection analysis and reporting on disinformation and influence ops. And most people don't know that because our reports are mostly for customers internally. Mm -hmm. Um, So my goal is really to like tell the world and show the world what we're doing. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I think one of my kids just walked in the door um, and show the world how we're doing it and why. Like there's a whole set of, of threats out there. It's manipulating information and manipulating people, how they think and the way they behave. And this is not necessarily a cyber threat, but it is a a threat that is happening in the cyber world that we need to be aware of. And so my goal is really to help our team create this methodology and a framework around analyzing disinformation so that we can kind of evangelize and teach that to other organizations as well. Because it's not just affecting voters and governments, it's also affecting companies because disinformation as a service is being sold in the dark web too. And uh, and the goal of that is to wreck a company's reputation so that, you know, that plays a big role in risk management um, so that personally, that's something that I'm tackling right now. And and that's an area where I can grow and help the industry um, mature. That's cool. I could go yeah. on and on. I, I Every time you say something, I have another question and um, it just make it a four hour podcast and, and no one wants to <laughs> listen to that. But um <laughs> To be continued, yeah. right? 
yeah, it's just it was. Yeah, there's there's lots. I think there's there's so much we could delve into. Um, I agree. I yeah. I think I I really admire um, your personality within the industry. Like you said before, there's not many extroverts, certainly mm. in the CTI space, and it's nice to see someone that is so articulate and so capable in this space come forward, do shows like this, put out products like you do, and I really enjoyed uh, certainly recently the webinars that uh, I attended of yours as well. And I absolutely recommend people follow you, you. And, uh, and look out for your work. You're making um, me blush. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I appreciate that so much because, you know, we, we just work the hardest we can and you don't often get feedback. So thank you. I appreciate that. That's good. Thank you for your time today, Karen.